Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Hey everybody, Aaron Noonan here. Great to have you with me. V8 Salute Podcast, powered by Retco. This week and next week, out and about in our natural sleuthing environment. The last few weeks we've been in the studio for episodes, but for these next two, I've been out on the road. And I've sat down with a guy who so many of you will remember from the 70s and the 80s and the very early 90s, Gary Scott. So for many of you, Gary Scott is missing. He's Bluebirds, he's Skylines, he's Bathurst pole position at Bathurst in 1986, but he had an open wheeler career, he went to the UK, he was the son of a racer who so sadly was there the day that his father was killed, an accident that put him off the sport for a while, but he came back and he remains in love with motorsport to this day, albeit not directly involved in it per se like he was in the previous decades. Over the next two weeks we talk about all sorts of stuff, we get nitty gritty about bluebirds, about skylines, about his time with the Holden Dealer team and Peter Brock, racing the Jaguar sports sedan, there's so many topics of discussion with Gary and one of the things that I really loved about watching him from afar over the years is that he always said it how it was, he always said how he felt it and that's what we get in these next two episodes of the podcast. So part one is right here right now. Part two will be released next week when we really get in depth with that 80s period of the Skylines and HDT and the Mitsubishi stuff. And he really opens up about a bunch of stuff that he's not talked about for a very, very long time, including the last time that he jumped behind the wheel of a race car. And not many people know it was a V8 supercar. So anyway, let's get into part one. I love this chat. I hope you do too. Sit in, buckle up and enjoy part one. Gary Scott on the V8 Salute podcast, powered by Repco. Gary Scott, thank you for having me. Thank you for uh, hosting us here at Mornington Toyota for the V8 Salute podcast. We may as well get the plug in right at the start. Uh, we're going to talk about your racing career and where you've been and what you've done. But what are you doing now? Why are you in a car dealership? Why are we sitting here in Mornington Toyota? Well, Aaron, I, um, I tell myself I'm too young to retire. I actually sold my own businesses about six years ago. I'm having a thoroughly good time here and um, in fact I, I'm finding it very very um, enjoyable it keeps my marbles in my head and um, and I find it invigorating to come to work each day so I hope to be working here for about another five years so um, I'm doing it because I enjoy it so you you do new car sales you're the bloke that people come to when they want to buy a Toyota indeed uh, like any traditional car dealership in Australia we um, we, we look after the um, new car sales but this dealership I also look after used cars there's a pretty light number of people here but we um, punch way above our weight in numbers so um, it's not uncommon for us to deliver 140 plus cars a month so big big dealership so people who are in motorsport always seem to find a way even if they're not in motorsport anymore they retain that automotive connection so you're still a fan you still watch racing on TV, although you're not in it day to day, you're you're still very much a a rev head. Look, I think if you ever follow motor racing, it's tragic. It gets in (laughs) your blood, it's in your DNA and 
um, if anyone sort of knows my history, I come from a family that was very actively involved with motorsport. Ever since I was a nipper, I can remember going to motor racing with my dad, who I just idolised. Um, you know, all my heroes growing up were motor racing people. And, um, you know, I'm old enough to remember places like Simmons, Pla uh, sorry, Longford, uh, Warwick Farm, going to there with dad. So, um, yeah, I... I'm a car tragic, still go watch the MotoGPs, love Formula One, and I will always sit down and watch Bathurst each year. And uh, my wife says, you, you, I'm an old fart, you should give it up. But um, <laughs> I think on the, my deathbed I'll still be wondering, who won the Grand Prix last night? <laughs> <laughs> do, do, you, uh, do you ever watch that shootout at Bathurst on a Saturday afternoon and, hey, kids, I did that. I had pole. I'm on that list. I was far more spectacular than those blokes are these days in a skyline compared to a Mustang or a Commodore. Well, you see, my own opinion's obviously very biased. But, um, <laughs> and, and, of course, the older they get, older I get, the better I was. But, um, no, that was actually um, very memorable for me in being serious. Um, it was the only time I ever went or had a chance to drive in the – Hardy's Heroes. In those days, it was always on a Saturday morning. Mm. And, and you got two goes at it back in those days no, too, I think. No, no, Well, they've changed it by that point. It was one go at Bathurst, but that prior to that at Sandown, we had two goes. Yeah. I and think in the, early, in the early years of Hardy's Heroes, they gave you two goes. Oh. But by the time I think you got pole, it was, I think it was down to one by then. Yeah, but every, very much one these days. Like you, you get one, one, one crack at it when you get correct. that track to yourself. Yeah, we had, I had one crack. Um, and, and, you know, it and it's to a driver, we all think we're the fastest. So that is the time you either do it or you don't. And it's a lot of pressure. And in those days, the cars were a little bit different to the, the supercars, which are fabulous today. We basically were driving road cars with roll bars in them, uh, no aerodynamics. So it was a bit tricky. <laughs> a no skyline power steering. could not be uh, accused of having aerodynamics at all. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> It, um, you, if you loved a car moving, and which I did, um, I loved a car that slide. I used to slide. I drove a car on the nose, um, and which means I, I, I always loved a car that turned in, and I just loved the back drifting because that was the fastest um, in that style of car. So no, I was very comfortable in those cars, but you had to actually take it to a place where it really wasn't happy or wanted to be to go very fast in them. You turned the volume down on the race day and drove them smoothly, but um, certainly on um, Hardy's Heroes, I think I made the car go about one and a half seconds, two seconds faster than it was capable of. And I guess if anyone wants to know relevance, you look at the modern day, um, to, in team, into teammates, I was, I think, two seconds. I don't know, I can't remember. Two seconds quicker than George and Glenn in the same car. So um, I had a big go that day. <laughs> the video would prove you to be a million percent right too because it's spectacular even watching on now. Is that is that your bannerhead thing that most people talk to you about when they talk to you about your racing? Obviously that was very public and out there in my own opinion. Uh, from my own knowledge and experience, I have done that many other times in other cars that no one's seen. Now, you know, I had some spectacular results in a Starion that didn't deserve to go anywhere near as fast as it did or the speed it did. Um, driving the car similarly to how I drove the Skyline, I had some fantastic um, lap times 
in the 80, 1985 when I drove the Bluebird as a sports sedan. I can remember doing a one minute 12 around Surface Paradise and a 54, low 54 around Lakeside, which was really a second, two seconds quicker than we'd ever gone in Group C days. And someone showed me a photo once of it going under the bridge and down into Hungry Corner. And there's one wheel on the ground, I think the right front wheel and every all the other wheels are about a, a foot in the air. Um, <laughs> you know, put it this way, I didn't uh, leave anything on the table. That's one way to put it. And and the video of some of those cars is, is probably proof. So were you... You said about because your dad raced, yep. your brother raced. Yep. So the Scott family's a bunch of racers from yep. way back. Correct. So, do you have a first memory of a, a first car that made an impression on you as a kid? Whether it was the the roadie in the driveway or the race car your dad was driving, or oh, or what, oh what gosh, you? everything's very clear. Um, it's amazing. You the human the human mind will remember things that they really love. Um, I can remember absolutely clearly when I was about five and a half. Uh, my dad got Normie Miller, who was, if the old folks, the Johnny French and the Freddie Gibson era, people will remember as the Duke. Um, Norm Miller, very good fabricator. He was dad's mechanic all through his career. He made me a little um, midget speed car and I was driving it at five years of age at, <laughs> at Lowood. And um, I remember they, dads gave me some very basic instructions, I, and, you know, brake, throttle, go, pushed the car off, it went, and I went charging down the straight at Lowood at about warp speed to a five-year-old and did a big turn and got stuck on a clump of grass and the car stopped but out of sight of mum and dad. And I remember this, uh, mum tells the story of how everyone went, holy shit, is he all right? And there was this charge of all these cars down the straight looking for me. Um, So I can remember that. I can um, uh, remember... Also being about 10 or 12 when I got a bit bigger, sitting on Dad's lap in the Cooper Climax and driving laps at Lowood, me steering and him driving, and that's etched in my memory. Um, and then, of course, as we got older, I can remember Dad uh, racing the, the, you know, all the Lotuses and the Bowens and the Elfins and uh, the Lotus Cortinas and things like that and going to the race meetings with him. Um, I was the chief polisher. So... Um, I have very vivid memories of people like Greg Cusack, uh, Bruce Burr, uh, the Gagan brothers, who uh, Leo and Pete, who I thought were unbelievable drivers. And even today, if someone walked in and asked me, who do you reckon's the best touring car driver you've ever seen? I'd say without hesitation, Pete Gagan. He was something special. He, um, my very first race at Lakeside, I was in a little Anglia and I remember not knowing at, at all what I was doing and trailing around the middle of the field and Pete had turned up in the Porsche uh, 911 and he'd, the car had turned up, it was a Reg Mort car and he'd started from the back of the grid and I knew he'd come past me at some stage but the guy was passing the whole field on the outside in the dirt under the bridge <laughs> at Lakeside <laughs> throwing rocks at everyone and, st- and sideways and just and I looked at it and thought I've got a bit to learn here. Yeah. <laughs> this guy's on another planet and and, you know, the, the Gagans were fabulous. I remember Kevin Bartlett driving, when I was a young guy, driving around the outside of Jackie Stewart at um, Surface Paradise around the the second corner, uh, the corner after the under the bridge and thinking, wow, that's pretty impressive. Um, I remember Frank Manage uh, leading everyone at Lakeside. And then, of course, I remember me, meeting and 
uh, Jim Clark and getting his autograph as a little tacker. And the next year he came and stayed at, at the, with the Gagans and I was there saying, and I must have been 10 or 12, I don't know. And I said, hello, Mr. Clark, you remember me from last year? And he said, yeah, I remember you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he was probably the smoothest driver I've ever seen drive a car. He, he, he's probably up there with my greatest ever drivers with the, the Senna's and the Lewis Hamilton's. Um, yeah, so I've, I've had a wonderful career and I've had got wonderful memories of motorsport. It's kind of like a modern day, for, you know, the Tasman series of the period when you grew up. The, for our listeners who are a bit younger, it's kind of the equivalent of the Formula One heroes in their off-season bringing out some cars to have a run against the locals and then doing a deal and, and selling them to stay and then flying back to start their own season in the next you know calendar year. It's like a whole other world compared to to now but that's what happened the big stars came here and and you know kids like you were able to go and you know be like the lewis hamiltons or sebastian vettels of the day were you know there to go and say hello to that's correct aaron and and you know the world there's not the what do they say with change there's nothing more constant than change and change will keep changing but in that day and era you know it was a a semi-professional amateurish you know the drivers were all mixed socially. Um, you know, I remember having some fabulous parties at mum and dad's house with all the drivers coming and, you know, getting up to all sorts of mischief. I can remember one party at Johnny French's place. He, Frenchy probably won't want to remember it. <laughs> him and Pete Gagan on the roof of the house with fire hydrants and hoses hosing everyone. Um, things like uh, Lennon's Hotels in Brisbane, um, apparently Graham Hill and them, they were launching... Um, flower pots at everyone walking past. Uh, but so anyway. long before David Reynolds went and launched that stuff on the Gold Coast 10 years ago, the, the, the greats were doing it in oh, the 60s. I, I nothing, so, there's nothing new going on anymore. No, I feel sad for the young blokes with this social media rubbish. You know, you can't do anything wrong when you get to a court. <laughs> Trust me, we all did naughty things. <laughs> <laughs> mm, I'll be careful. I'll be careful what I ask from here on in. Okay, no more okay. comments. No, 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 fair point, fair point. So um, before we, we, we started, you were great mates with Greg Hansford. You grew up together as kids yeah. and, and you did you do motocross with him? Was it a case of you doing bikes and when your best mate's so good and went on to be a world champ superstar, does that make you go, oh, actually, uh, maybe I'm not cut out for bikes when you're up against, you know, a, a future uh, super-duper hero? Look, you know, um, how do we – Greg grew up in Barden. I grew up in Rosalie, so we're in suburbs next to each other. We had a very close mutual friend who since – gone on to become a doctor, Phil Manfield. So Phil introduced me to Greg when um, he used to come and work at our garage when he was 15, 16. Um, so Greg was an absolute gun bike rider with Warren Willing. Tremendously unlucky not to have won a couple of world titles. He just unfortunately was injured twice, two years running. I, I'm going to guess 78, 79. I was in England at the time racing F3. Um, he just would fall off and break his leg or do something right when he was about to fix up Cork Ballington. And I believe there's a statistic he held the most number of Grand Prix wins till either Wayne Gardner or Mick Doohan came along, but he never became world title. And, of course, he jumped um, into cars at a later, jo- a later time and did a fabulous job. Um, and, you know, he was a good friend all through my you know, late teens. Uh, we did – I raced bikes. That's – probably fundamentally because of Greg's. He was motocrossing, so I bought a Yamaha motocrosser and I love motocross riding. We did trials and seven-day events, uh, sorry, the uh, uh, enduros. And my family um, is 
Morgan and Wacker, and they're the oldest operating Harley Davidson dealership in the world outside of America, Milwaukee. So Grandpa Henry Wacker started the business. So I grew up with my uncles working and playing with Norton motorbikes and Triumph motorbikes and Harley Davidsons and BMWs, and they were also the Evinrude out. So I, from a very young age, was exposed to everything mechanical. When I was racing motocross, I actually think I came third or something. I did quite well in a 250 Queensland scramble motocross race in Bundaberg. And then I remember falling off or getting belt knocked and landing in the middle of the pack over a hump and crawling either way as car bikes were landing either side of me. And I'm thinking, this is dangerous. I think I better go car racing. <laughs> My uncle at that time, Doug Wacker, who's since passed, was very keen for me to go circuit racing with Harley Davidson 250 and 350s because they were racing world championship at that time and they wanted to bring the bikes out. But um, as you know, my dad um, tragically was killed in 1970. So I was very conscious of safety and I just didn't want to expose my mother to racing bikes because at that stage, um, you know, a lot of my friends and acquaintances did get killed or in bike racing, it was tremendously dangerous then. They had no air fences, they had no uh, Kevlar in their leathers, they had no uh, safety features on the tracks and, you know, they were racing on tracks that were made for cars with Armco and it was it was a very dangerous time, as was racing cars at that time. You know, the world's moved on, mm. thankfully. Mm. Did you, you, losing your dad in that crash in 1970, did that make you question whether you wanted to because I presume you were all in wanting to be a race driver yep. like your dad before that did that undo okay. that passion for a while look I won't go into the the logistics except to say that I was actually there when dad had his accent like there there I he lost his goggles and I trotted back from the start of this thing to our pits and I turned around as and I'd grab his spare goggles thinking he'd come in and pick them up um, but the accident happened in front of me and the as the accident happened, I realised it was tremendously serious. I ran to the fence and was climbing the fence, but a, a dear friend of Dad, Tony Paul, beat me to it. And um, Tony jumped the fence and, and when I realised the severity of what was going on, I just had to turn around and I, I then went looking for Mum and my brother and sister. Um, but that shook me up. Uh, I freely admit it. Um, I didn't want to have anything to do with cars or car racing for about four years and that's fundamentally, I guess, what pushed me towards going racing bikes with Greg. But I, the Gagans would always use our garage as a base when they raced at um, Lakeside. And um, Leo, I went and helped him once, I think with a, I can't remember, it was Pete maybe with the Falcon. Anyway, I went to a race meeting and I just thought, no, I like this. And I literally walked around the pits and bought an Anglia sports sedan. <laughs> I saw a car for sale. It was a very much a spur of the moment decision. Um, and off I went from there. But my mother many years later told me, Dad, uh, he, he, I had done some, I never raced go-karts, never did anything at all. But I did an advanced driving school with a fellow called John Fraser, who's well known in Queensland motorsport. And John apparently quietly told Dad that I, he thought I had a bit of ability. So Dad was going to put me into the 23B um, the next week when I was 17, and which is, you know, I, I didn't really know, but I wanted to race. But, of course, you know, history and circumstances change our lives and, you know, you just you get the cards you dealt with and mm. away you went. Um, 
one of the biggest regrets, and obviously I, I grew up then without a dad, but it made me grow up. Um, I ended up being in our family business. It taught me a lot of skills. And, and that was a mechanical workshop, yeah, wasn't it? It was a yeah. big service centre. In those days, dealerships didn't really have the name of service centres. Um, people would buy a new car and then take them to service centres. So we had a big business, a very successful business, panel beating, spray painting, all that. And at 17, I, um, I was basically the figurehead of it. I didn't know what I was doing, but I was trying hard. But luckily we had very good crew and um, they sort of guided me through and kicked my ass whenever it needed kicking. <laughs> but um, my life I know now would have been very, very different if my dad had been around because I des- I re- all I ever wanted to be was in Formula One. That was my only goal in life. Um, that's what I was living to do. Um, I was quite a good tennis player, but I gave that up. Um, the... And da- I needed Dad to come to England with me to support me because I just thought when you go to England, which I did a, a four or five years later, um, you could get by an ability. I, you can't do that at all. You really need backing. You need money. You need an infrastructure behind you. So um, I had none of that. But I, at 21, you think you know everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, life, life's learning. I, you know, I learn every day and, um, you know, and I'm still here, which is... They're thankful too. So from the Anglia, you go open wheelers as a yep. cheetah with Formula 3. Yep. So guys like Brian Sampson and Brian Sheeter, they're kind of the, the benchmarky yeah, sort of guys, aren't they? Yeah. Sheedy and Sambo, great r- ripper blokes um, and, in fact, got on personally very well with them. But, God, were they competitive and they hated <laughs> losing. They used to hate losing to each other. There's, um, I believe there's some famous stories of them having punch-ups in the trailer afterwards when one beat the other guy. But the first year when I had my little Formula 3, I was finding my way um, and you know, I did some success in Queensland and I went and raced a bit in a- Amaru but I think I partied a lot more than I concentrated <laughs> on uh, tri- and um, Jim Bertram who was Leo Gagan, Moffat, a very, very famous engine builder and even to this day, I, you know, he's a Peter Malloy um, guru. He, people who know engines know Jim Bertram. Um, Jim's still around. He's getting quite old now but the dearest man, incredibly intelligent. Um, he came to me and said, Gary, I he had a big business that was in opposition to the Samsons, uh, Brian Sampson, uh, Motor Improvements, and he said, I want you to try and beat these guys and I'm going to help you do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was very driven and he made an engine for me that was very, very trick. And uh, the second year in my thing, I started winning everything. We set, in fact, I uh, my memory serves me correct, we own it. Definitely had the late lap record surface, Lakeside, Oran Park short track, um, Amaru. Um, so we we did very, very well. And I, in that day, um, in that stage, it was the Goodyear National Formula 3 Championship. And I was lucky enough to win it. And at the same year, I then drove, had my first race at Bathurst with um, Peter, Were- uh, Peter, Peter Williamson, I should say, in the Celica. So it was a busy year and I was heading off to England the next year to set the world on fire. Um, so that's sort of my pre-early racing days before I came back from overseas. So you go to the UK yep. with stars in your eyes and Formula yep. One's the where I want to get to and where yep. I want to go. So I, I looked this up. So so you, you hook up at, with a Rolt. Yep, so I, I order a Rolt. I ring this um, fellow called Ron Turanak and say, Ron, I'm coming over to overseas. Can I, I'm going to buy a car. And he says, okay. 
and I order the car and I turn up in England and I also got engaged to Fiona and um, Fiona and I are still married. Uh, I think we're up to 44 years. So Fiona got tossed in her job and she had a senior job with TAA. So the two of us came over there. I went over there six weeks ahead and stayed with Bruce Allison, who was racing cars and another good mate. Um, and I turn up at Ron's place the day after I arrive in England and, okay, yeah, you put it together. And I met Roy Billington and Jeff Rabham and Larry Perkins, uh, Paul Bernasconi, all these sorts of folks were working it with Ferron and I got a job there. He said, you can work here. So I not only started assembling other people's race cars, but I assembled mine and off we went. But I had no money at all. And what I'd have to do, I think I did five Formula 3 races and really um, just was doing it all incorrectly. No testing, turn up for the practice session, one 20-minute session, and the often the races were all in one day, practice in the morning, race in the afternoon. And there was a chappie turned up from Brazil called Nelson PK, <laughs> who, in my opinion, is probably right up there with the Nelson, uh, with the Lewis Hamiltons and the Senna's in incredibly intelligent guy, ripper guys. We became good friends. I remember he he had a lot of money but was very down to earth. Um, I remember him and I pulling his his Cortina apart because he didn't know how to do that and blew a head gasket, so I fixed that. But Greg Sedell was um, very kind to me. He would tell me the gear ratios to put in the car um, and I'd turn up with sort of Nelson's gear ratios in the car with no testing. And... Um, I struggled along, but by a third or fourth race, I went to a place called Alton Park, which is very similar to Lakeside, and I, I sort of clicked um, the car and thing. And I, there was three factory cars: Nelson PK, Derek Warwick in the Chevron, and um, Chico Sierra in the March. And each of the car manufacturers competed very heavily against each other because obviously for market share, and they were supported. Ron actually supported Nelson quite a lot. Um, so I, I actually got myself, I passed um, Nelson, uh, Nigel Mansell and Torkel Tiring and Jeff Brabham and Bobby Rahl, all those sort um, who else was there that names, okay, Stefan Johansson. There were people like that who I, I got up to fourth and I was um, thought radio and I was sort of on the back of the leading pack and I thought, you know, I've got this wired, I'm, I'm now off and running. Um, unfortunately, I had a very big accident, uh, the car missed for a lap and I, normal circumstances, you would have stopped, but what was happening, the electronic box behind my head was dislodged and it actually was having an intermittent short. And then I came through um, past Alton Park Pits and if anyone knows that track, you come past there flat in fourth gear, in top gear about 140 mile an hour. You change down fourth gear, flat out corner. Um, I think it's cops, I think they call it anyway, and the engine cut out and I, um, was a passenger then and hit a fence very hard and rode off the car. And from then on, I was on the back foot. I um, did restore it and I think I sold it to Eddie Irvine who um, bought the car uh, off me and um, he ran. Um, oh, uh, Eddie Cheever? No, uh, um, the guy who uh, Eddie, who ended up in Formula One, um, he, he had a sponsor, an Irish guy. He bought the car and he ran it, I think, F3. Oh, Eddie Mike. Jordan. 
Eddie Jordan. Who then later ran yeah, Eddie yeah, Irvine yeah, in yeah. Formula One. Yeah. yeah, they bought my old car. All these Irishmen and, yeah. and Eddies. Anyway, and yeah, yeah, so yeah. I, I, I sat there in England for a little while. A company called Image Formula Ford got me to do testing for their cars and I bought an engine and ran in the um, Formula Ford Festival. Same thing, they didn't really have enough money to do it properly, but I got into the semi-finals and just missed the finals. Um, with no testing. Um, I had a couple of races at Castle Coombe. Um, I've been to Castle Coombe. Fabulous place. It's fast, isn't it? It's fast. Anyway, um, Dr. Doolittle, the movie, was made there, as you know. Yeah, in the yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. So I'm leading the race and and the it blew the oil cooler, oil catch tank blew, fell off the back of the car and tipped oil on my back tyres and I spun in the lead. <laughs> um, but anyway, I at the same at this stage, um, so I've been there a little while, our business in Australia was collapsing um because I, you were away because i was away yeah. and had no ship lovely people there but you need a captain in a in a business um i was aware of that my mother was stressing um i had an offer from john shepherd to come back and drive with brock in the dealer team and peter was aware and i sort of said yes I had come back in the time I was overseas and drove with Dickie in the Falcon at, um, at um, Bathurst. That was great fun. Loved that time with Dick. I was going to say you went from an F3 car yeah. to a hard top Falcon at Bathurst. I couldn't think of two more Actually, diametrically opposed cars. Actually, it just reminds me of a funny story. Like I had only driven an Anglia um, sports sedan and this is my was always my advice if young people starting to drive race cars what you really need to do in your career early on is not drive a formula ford or a formula three because they're fundamentally perfect race cars you need to drive a bucket of bolts i won't say you, you can swear we're good for swearing in fact our uh, listeners get disappointed if we don't have a little bit of swearing every now and then well the bigger the buck of the shit you drive the better your driver you'll be. You have to drive around all sorts of problems. The Anglia I had was a dreadful car. It would only go in a straight line. Wanted to kill you if you looked at a corner. So <laughs> I jumped in. I, I um, came back overseas. Dick said, oh, off you go. So this is, folks, the, like, uh, Dick was a hero at that stage. He was a winning touring car rounds. So we go testing at Lakeside. One mechanic, Roy. And Roy and the on the trailer and me helping him get the car off. That's it. That's the crew. Off we go. I do some laps and I love driving the car. It was great fun. Dick had a steering wheel on it off a stock standard Falcon with the horn rim in the centre. So I ring him up and I say, Dick, I can't even hold this damn steering wheel. I said, you've got to have a decent steering wheel. He said, oh, do you? I said, yeah, let's go buy a Momo steering wheel at Jim Bertram's GP Cars. And he says, okay. Anyway, um, this it's just a different era. So anyway, we turn up at Bathurst and Dick uh, getting organised and he, when I had my first drive, I think Wednesday afternoon or whatever, I'd never actually driven a car over about 140 mile an hour. So the cars used to do 180 mile an hour then. The straight was straight and it had a bigger hump and the Falcon used to lift its front wheels up about a foot going over the last hump and leave the back wheels on the ground so you could keep your foot flat on the throttle and it'd just do a giant wheelie. <laughs> And Jeez. anyway, I go down the straight the first time and I get halfway down, holding it flat, and I think, oh, God. It took me three laps to work up the courage to keep my foot flat on the throttle and um, freely admit it, it scared the bejesus out of me. Um, very, very different days to drive. The cars were quite dangerous. Um, but anyway, you, um, you know, nose power steering, giant car, 
Um, anyway, Dick unfortunately had a flat, t- got caught a puncher about six lap and clipped a fence. And we um, took an hour, a couple of hours to fix the car up. And I then got to drive it later in the day. Um, unfortunately, we didn't get a result. But then I was went back overseas. And um, when I came back uh, the next, and I was here in the country, Peter t- Brock and Jim John Harvey, to their credit, um, offered me a drive in the, with Philip Brock in the Gemini, which oh, was great. So, so this was – so the, the Shepo thing changed because he, he, he was uh, out and Brock took over running the no, team. No, he wasn't for out. The team got sold. The, the that's team. right. Yeah. In terms – he wasn't running anymore. No. It became the Brock team yeah. funded by the dealers. Sorry, I jumped a, yeah, a fair yeah, bit yeah. of time there. But, yeah, so but that I, was the connection originally for you and your HDT sort of yeah, tie-up. Yeah, yeah, so I think they – John Shepard may or may not have seen me drive Dick's car because I – I was actually very fast in the car at Lakeside and Roy and Dick will sort of could verify it. I, w- I was a fair bit under the lap record and the owner of the car, John Harris, was really impressed. He wanted me to do a lot more with the car and the team but I was going back overseas. So um, I went back overseas and, of course, then I decided – I. Well, I'll finish the overseas thing. So I've met lots of lovely people over there. Saw Alan Jones drive at his peak, um, become world champion. He's he's a hell of a nice guy and a hell of a driver. Man, he could drive a car. Um, but I wasn't getting any brakes. Um, I almost got a drive in IndyCar with a guy called Roy Winkleman who fundamentally started um, uh, March Cars with uh, Max Mosley and he personally sponsored Ronnie Peterson and he needed me to get a little bit of money to go race IndyCars, but I couldn't raise the money. We came back to Australia to try and raise the money. Um, But the drive eventually went to Roberto Marino. Long story short, I decided to come home, uh, had my chance, didn't happen. Um, Let's go back and see if we'll just build a business and have a life. I didn't come back expecting to motor race, um, but... I did nothing uh, car racing at all for about six or eight months and a whole lot of friends said, we want you to race a car, we're going to give you some money and we want you to build a Gemini so we can come and go motor racing with Jeff Suksuski at Lakeside. So I fundamentally fell into this Gemini thing, which was great fun. Like a one-mate uh, yeah, the Gemini one-mate series, thing, which yeah. you know, gave a lot of young blokes their, it did, their break. But obviously I, I was highly experienced and you know, I, I wasn't a young guy having a go, I, even though I was young. But... Um, Brock at the same time came to me and said, come and drive the Gemini and um, we'll see where we go. And incidentally, uh, coincidentally, I um, joined, um, when I joined Dick Johnson to drive the Falcon, I replaced Fern Schupen in the car. Um, and then when I went and joined the Holden dealer team, yeah. I actually replaced Vern, yeah, who was John. <laughs> yeah. I mightn't be on Vern's Christmas card list, but I only met him once or twice and he seemed to really Well, nice if there's guy. a gap, you've got to fill it, Gary. Yeah, you know. exactly. Yeah, just whatever. He, he was very successful in his own right. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, And within seconds, you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out. So we've come back for overseas and it was great fun driving the little Gemini. And um, then Peter and John said, well, look, we want you to drive the the H2 
H, the the uh, the dealer team cars, the Commodores next year, and Larry at that stage joined the team fundamentally the same time I was uh, was joining the big team. We both had a test day at, um, at Surface Paradise, and um, you know I guess at that stage Peter was really king of the kids and had a fabulous operation, great cars. John Harvey was just the nature's gentleman and a wonderful guy to race with. Um, no, I had an absolute ball with the Holden dealer team. And um, and then, of course, um, uh, uh, Howard Marsden uh, asked me to join, uh, along with Fred, join the Nissan team. And, you know, things led on from there. But in those days, it was a different world because it wasn't pro professional. It was people like Dick and Brocky and um, Alan Moffat. You know, great drivers, professional, um, but they still had to go get money. They had to go get their own sponsorship. Um, when I joined the Nissan team in 1983, my understanding is it was George, myself and Jim Richards, who was driving for BMW, were the only three people who got paid to drive cars. Mm. Yeah, um, outside of the other blokes who owned yeah, and had owned, to do it all, and Brock and Dick yeah, and Moffat yeah. were DIYing at Grice and yeah, that sort of all stuff. Those yeah. Things, yeah, yeah. And for a manufacturer too who... You know, it was a manufacturer team, the Nissan team. Correct. And um, it, it, it was just different times and different days. Um, but, you know, great great time, fabulous time to hold and deal team, great time driving with George and Howard and all the boys uh, in the Bluebird. It was a great little car. So that, just quickly before we go Nissan, because that's mm -hmm. a big chunk of the, the yes. Gary story. So with the dealer team, there was the Gemini in 81, the Commodore in 82, you and Harves finished third. That could have been a one-two oh, for the dealer you. team. It was easily but he got crook because I think crook. wasn't the story that he got crook because someone had accidentally clipped a instead of a drink straw for his drink they'd clipped a um, a hose from an oil bottle or, or something similar and he ended up copping not just water on the way through but he he just got crook out of it and couldn't keep the pace going in the last run. I um, <clears throat> gosh, um, I, I, it gets the old grey cells going here. <laughs> My understanding and best memory, we didn't have drink. We didn't have drink bottles in those days. The first time I ever drove with a drink bottle was in 1987. Oh, luxury. With the Nissan, uh, with the, the Mitsubishi Starion, and I got them to make a um, a drink bottle up with a windscreen wiper motor in it so I could push. Pump it through. Yeah. yeah. And they thought that was pretty clever. Um, the No, no, there was no drink bottles. And John, John actually um, got, I think, dehydrated. Mm. Um, he just dehydrated. Ran out of gas. And he ran out of gas. And, you know, he wasn't 21. I think he was probably, I, don't, I can't remember, but he was four, in his 40s. Mm. And he. And he, um, he, he, he's basically his body shut down and he was very lucky to finish the race. He was losing 10, 15, 20 seconds well, a lap. He, well, he didn't even get on the podium with no. you. I think you went up there on yeah. your own for I third did, yeah. place. Yeah, yeah. he, he um, basically, it, it was dramatic, the fall off. So, yes, Alan uh, was lucky that year, I guess, to come second. Um, it, it, Bathurst chooses you and chooses your luck, I can assure you. Mm. Um, it... it we should have had an easy one too, but Larry and um, Brock just pulverised the opposition, mm. and um, you know we we weren't as quick as a team, John and I, um, and 
you know, that's how it was. We came third. And I thought that was fantastic to actually stand on a podium at Bathurst. Absolutely. Uh, There's not many people in Australia who can ever say that they've no. done that legitimately in the, the big race that matters. So was it that result that got the Nissan attention? And plus, you know, what you've done overseas, that kind of – they were looking, oh, who's the yeah. next young bloke around that we can well, grab here? yeah, I think obviously that did get attention. Um, there was a chappy um, – who a lot of people don't know, um, called Barry Tapsell. Barry used to race for Nissan which when it was Datsun. He was a factory driver in the old little 1200 days. And Tapo was a friend of Dad's and a family friend and he he sort of um, kept an eye out on me and he used to keep in touch with Howard. They were good friends. And Howard must have mentioned to him about a driver or thinking of things because Fred was getting – he wanted to stop. And um, – I got a phone call, go and see this guy. And um, I rang Howard up and he said, no, no, I want you to come down. So they got me to come down to a Sandown race meeting, Touring Car Round, and I had to be a little bit discreet because I was actually still, I hadn't told Peter that I didn't want to drive. Like, I'm sure I could have driven if I'd stayed in 84. Like, I'd fitted in really well with the Holden Deal team. We got on famously, I go... I, I loved the whole deal. At that time of the motor racing world, a unit, that was the centre of the world. Mm. Like if you were in the Holden Dealer team, You're you in were the big Uno thing. Numero. You, mm. were the, you were king mm. of the kids. Mm. And um, so I was discreet to not let Peter know I was talking to someone else. Um, but Howard offered me a drive and um, so that was to start in 83. Then I let them know that I was going elsewhere and, you know, that was fine, all good. And um, Howard would only um how did how did how would we describe this he he didn't really want me to drive with george at a race meeting um he george was the number one driver i was number two driver and the rules were pretty laid out clear to me um so i would do the better brake series in amaru in 84 but in 83 even though i was with nissan i only did um two races Sandown and Bathurst, yeah. I guess, yeah. And Jurors. I did a test day at Orham Park and in the race at Sandown, George called a, ray, a rock in the radiator when he was leading or whatever. Um, I didn't even get to drive. So fundamentally I rock up to Bathurst the first <laughs> time I've ever driven the car and I think George was second on the grid. That's right, he was. And yep. we, um, you know, to me all that was then tremendously exciting because like here I am sitting in a car that's going to start on the front row of the grid and I've got a chance to win. The Bluebird in race trim was always like the Skyline against V8s, was always a bit hamstrung when we had full tanks of fuel. We just didn't have the torque to match it, the other guys. But come half tank situation, we would then be on a level footing. Um, different engines, 2 litre turbo, 1.8 litre. But um, I think we ended up having a um, uh, George caught first gear I, there was something went wrong he the clutch blew up on the first lap mm. we had a something went wrong with the gearbox and it mal selected or did something so we're out um, but they fixed the car and off we went and i remember having a fantastic dice for about five or ten laps with brocky um, and i'd come from at that stage he was just cruising around and i i came from a fair way back and caught him up and passed him and and because he I'd driven the year before and we he was waving to me as I'm going past and I'm waving <laughs> to him back and um yeah it was great fun so I, I 
you know, people talk about uh, synergies and things like that. There was something clicked with me in a Bluebird. I loved that car. I just loved the way it drove. It was suited my driving style. Was it because it was a bit of a beast and you could really, when you cranked it right mm-hmm. up, it was on the edge and that's how you like to drive it? Oh, it, it, it was a balanced car and it, it, it was incredibly sensitive. Like you could change the springs 10 pounds, like from, I think we ran 450. 450 uh, pound springs in the car and we moved it from 425 to 450 and it fixed it and we we thought um, it we would do a um, let's go a little bit more because every as we were going up in the spring rate it kept the car flat and it kept the wheels on the ground because it had a very big tendency to two wheel everywhere um, and we went to 470 and destroyed the car's handling so mm. um, it was that sensitive so it would be. It was very balanced, but it was when you went on the edge. It was a very fine thing to drive. Now we've copped a lot of questions from people knowing that we were going to come and chat to you. Uh-huh. And when the bluebird comes up, yeah. they always ask about the ashtray. Yeah. Can you tell us the tricks of the tray okay. of the bluebird once and for all for people to know? Okay. Look, George and I will tell you. Look you in the eye. Hold our hands on our heart and tell. Yes, it did have the ashtray. It had an adjustable boost in it. And yes, our headlight switch had the adjustable brake balance. So pull the ashtray out for yep. okay. more. But let me let me re rephrase this because <laughs> this is something that people and you do need to have to understand this and trust me here. We're all in. We're, We're listening. All, okay. In. The the boost's adjusted by wastegates. It's under the bonnet. The ga- the the little gauge in the in the ashtray was so finite it was to fine tune the boost. So what you would do is it, we would may let's imagine we use one point seven bar boost in qualifying. You'd go out and it might have one point six nine bar boost. You would probably wind this thing fifteen times one way or the other, whichever way you had to go to get it to go a point of a bar. Hmm. I never, George never ever, ever touch the ashtray in a race. It was only to fine-tune the boost if it wasn't quite set perfectly. So, folks, we weren't winding the boost up and down. Up in it wasn't going 1.5 to 2.1. Like, what we had when we started the race is what we had. So to give you some idea, I think if my memory serves me correct, we'd qualify about 1.7 in the Bluebirds. And we would race with 1.3 or 1.2. Made a massive difference in horsepower. Mm. I do know, um, so getting back to the brake balance, yes, you would never touch the brake balance in the race except in long distance races when you might give it two clicks of rear brake, two turns of rear brake when you had a full tank of gas and you come in. It was only to fine tune the braking. So I never touched the brake balance except when I had full tanks at Bathurst. All the races at Amaru or wherever I else I race, even when I raced it as a sports sedan in 85, never touched the brake balance in the race. So, um, no, we weren't having fudges and playing. So <laughs> put that thing to bed, done, <laughs> done and dusted. But um, one thing, interesting thing, and, and it's a nice story. So we that the race I went to in 84, we did go again to Sandown and I did the – 
I didn't drive in the race because George caught the radiator, but on the Saturday, Howard and the boys came up with this idea of running Freon gas, air conditioning Freon gas, straight onto the intercooler. And we filled a fire extinguisher with the stuff and I was sent out with a thermometer fundamentally and rev counter on the tacker, quite a bit of sophisticated gear in the spare car. And my job was to do the readout on the straights to Howard and they would record it. So George is out busy doing qualifying or whatever in the other car and I'm going down the back straight. So this is something from memory. Um, I Sure. Is it what's the tight corner at the end past the old pits where you go before the back straight? Oh, it's had a few different names over the years and a anyway, few different sponsors. So but we know the one you yeah, mean. Yeah, right, yeah, you know yeah. the one going up the back straight. So the temperature on the in the um, in the um, um, in chamber of the you know, the intercooler chamber coming into the engines thirty degrees, whatever thirty five. Hit the button, and I'm reading it out to Howard. 25, 20, 15, 10. 10, minus 5, <laughs> minus 15, minus 20. Because cool yeah, is it's, good. It's cool's good. So it went from plus 30 to maybe minus 30 in literally five seconds, a few, half the length of the back straight. You could imagine what that could do because we could run a lot more boost. So we get to Bathurst and um, George was a little down in the dumps on Saturday morning um, for whatever reason. Um, <laughs> Why and, are you winking at me? Anyway, so we'd done some stuff on uh, Friday afternoon in the car and George just wasn't happy with how it all went. But anyway, I, we, we were staying in the same motel room, so we turned up to Bathurst for Hardy's Heroes in 1984. And if anyone's been, was there that year, or can remember, it was snowing. On so, Saturday morning. Oh, yeah, it had yeah. snowed all night. Anyway, it was still snow on the ground. Mm. But it was a perfectly clear day and I said to George, George, mate, you are going to put this thing on pole. You are going to go so fast and we're going to run so – look at the temperature. It's mm. never been – so I think they ran 1.8 or 1.9. We went more than we've ever, ever done. Uh, George only used it on the straights, the thing, but he gave it a, a hip and that would have given us a lot of power. Um, and, of course, as they say, the rest so is – So let me just get this right. He's used this in the shootout lap to do the thirteen eight five that got Correct. the pole in eighty four. Correct, and and it was freezing, and it was freezing. The ambient temperature. So was, you got the perfect thing. You You've got, got a got perfect the, storm. So, but no one knew about this no. extra little. No, but then everyone copied it. The next year, Peter and all. Oh, they the did it in the Sierra days yeah. a bit later on, a few years well, later. That yeah. was because George Smith and all that. All uh, the who was Nissan with Brock team, later on? Because when the yeah. when they were all. It's you know, motor racing's a small world. It is, and true. the mechanics. You know, there are good mechanics and good engineers, and the good engineers are always highly sought after. George Smith was one of the very, very best. Andy Bartley, you yeah. know, these these guys are Win Ellery, um, geniuses. Mm. You know, Bruce Nowacki, mm. uh, Marty. I, I can't remember. Part um, Neil Burns, Jackie yep. Stewart. Yep. these yep. are people. Um, the Murphy brothers um, all could get the job anywhere, and every team would want them. Mm. So. Um, so George, uh, Georgie Smith was the instigator of the Freon gas, so that's – I would imagine that technology got transferred. <laughs> <laughs> it all makes a little bit more sense now. It, does, it makes and, a bit more sense. And, you know, what do they say? You weren't cheating at all. You were just maybe pushing boundaries. Boundary pushing. It's a thing. Harry Firth thing. used to do it. He was an expert. Is it only cheating if you get caught? I didn't say that. 
No, I'm just no, I'm just asking a question. Our <laughs> listeners can answer that to themselves. That's absolutely no. Look, how they can answer. Don't you take anything away from George? Unbelievable driver. If anyone's seen him in a rally car, we do would, have to get him on the podcast too, by the way, because I hear he lives in Victoria. Now. He does. He, yeah. And ripper teammate, ripper guy, great fun. Him and Margie, we got on famously. Um, it's a shame we didn't do more together in the Nissan things, but um, you know he was one hell of a driver. Bloody hell, he never crashed the car. Really, really good. Got you know, got himself into some fantastic results through skill. Um, yeah, great guy. And had the rally stuff yeah. as well as the yeah, circuit a stuff. Lot of, and a lot of people can't do, do that. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's an all-rounder type yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, so no. the, the Group C era ends. Yep. Bluebird as a race car in Group C ends, but you carry it on for a year in the sports sedans yeah, and so, GTs. So um, we did the uh, last Group A race. At um, uh, there's a little uh, Group A race, a bit of a history here. So I did the very last Group A race at Surface Paradise. Oh, Group C, Group C, C. Group yeah, C yeah, in yeah, the Bluebird, yeah, yeah, yeah. which George, was the endurance race yeah. at Surface. Yeah. So that was its last race. So it was a very strange race at Surface Paradise. We all the timing gave all of us fundamentally the same time. We all did a one minute fourteen three. <laughs> Everyone's a winner. <laughs> Everyone was a winner. So it was a very strange. So literally the first six, four or five rows of the grid. We all were at the same time. I think I was fourth on the grid. I think Moff was on front, Marsden, Greg was left, uh, the front row, and then me, and then Brock, Gricey, all the... Anyway, we, um, we took off and I really thought I had that race covered. Um, I remember passing Brock and Greg around the outside of the second corner on the first lap. I, and as I was doing that, I was thinking, I can do this. I've seen KB do this to Jackie Stewart. I actually tell KB this story and we laugh when I do it. <laughs> anyway, um, so we're running around. But I ended up um, having a clutch issue early on and the clutch would stick. And um, But then it came good. So I dropped to, I think, third or fourth. And anyway, I came charging back and I caught up Moffat and I was had the capacity to win the race with the speed. Brock was in front, Moff second, me third, and Moff drives straight into the side of my car as I'm passing him going under brakes and um, breaks the steering arm. What Howard said to me as I'm coming back and I'm saying to Howard, which is, it's unprintable what I say and I won't say, but I want to kill someone. Um, he said, no, no, don't worry, Alan did that deliberately. Um, if you had, if he had, you got past, he would have lost the Australian um, Manufacturers Championship. That's how he drives, that's how Mom drives. <laughs> he takes no prisoners. And the funny thing is, Alan used to tell Greg all the time that I, Gary owes me one and um, I've struck him a couple of times at uh, having coffee at Turak and he, we laugh about it now. He said, oh, I got you that day. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Group C, Group C finishes. Group A starts. Nissan were didn't have a car to start with, so we didn't. I ran the Bluebird. Howard uh, let loaned me the car with a mechanic, and uh, we got sponsorship, and we ran it as a sports sedan just to keep um, some a Nissan uh, in front of the public, and that was great fun. And um, we achieved some fabulous results in the sports sedan as a, as a sports sedan, and then I've given the car. It's obviously gone back to Nissan and um, then we've moved on to the Skyline. Oh, but did, did you do that Pulsar 1 make series that year where yes. everyone bounced the crap out of each other? Correct. <laughs> that was probably like WWF of 
Australian motor racing. So Nissan, as you said, the Skyline wasn't ready for a Group A car. No. So they prep a, I don't know, 12, 14, 15, however many there were, yep. of these little pulsars for a one-make series and they get all the stars to yep. have a crack. You're in it. George is in it. Jim's in it. Dick's having a crack. Yep. And seriously, bow. Bowie, there were more cars barrel rolling um, and crashing Port, than I've Jeff ever seen. Jeff Portman, young Glenn Seaton. Uh, oh, a whole lot, right? It Steve was Masterton. It, it was, was wild. wild. I need to so, get the videos out of these. So we started out, you draw your car out of a marble. Out oh, of yeah, there. random. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no yeah. one's getting the, the well, good run. the cars were different. <laughs> oh, here we go. Another story. Tell oh, more. No, that we, some of them were better, some of them weren't. But, uh, so they, did they, the Nissan blokes get the good cars? No, no, it was, it was completely random. Right. Uh, no, no. It was, anyway, we all had one or two races and it was all lovely and, you know, you gave people a bit of space and... Peter McKay was racing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I launched him one day. <laughs> Where? I, well, he was holding everyone up. Oh, well, that's justified, isn't it? Well, he, he was at Amaru. He just held us all up for about three laps and I so you just, sorted it out? Well, I just leant on him a little bit. <laughs> it didn't push him out of the way. I just sort of moved, as the NASCAR boys say, I moved him. Yeah, right. Anyway, <laughs> um, we ended up, there were, unfortunately, or for... Not involving me, but there's, there were a few people who wanted to have a few get squares. We ended up at a race in Adelaide and it, it actually was just actually pretty ordinary. Some driving, it was uh, demolition derby mm. and um, people just putting people into the scenery for no good reason. Um, so I think um, poor old Howard went a lot greyer and the mechanics were building cars, Hell West and Crooked, so that's died a natural death. I think... Jim Richards won it. He won a car. He tended to win everything that he went in, like one-make stuff. Very, good driver. Oh, Jimmy. Try, he, he he just about got in all those one-makey things, Triumph TR7s and Pulsars like, and you know, could do pe- it all. People think of the modern, and this is just rambling a little bit, you know, people look at, you know, um, the Jamie Wincups or Shane Van Gisbergen's and Reynolds. You know, they're fabulous drivers, but don't forget... They were no better than another generation. There mm, was always mm. fabulous drivers around, like Jimmy Richards and Brock and the Gagans, you know, George Furies, Johnny Bowes, uh, Dickies. They, they'd all hold their own if they were. Yeah, you know, everyone has same. their era. There's, yeah, there's guns of every era. And so people should never think someone's better than the others because there's only been a very, very few very special people. Mm, and, mm. Um, you know, on my one, I can count them on one hand of the very special people. Who's in, if you've got one hand, you've got five. Okay. Okay, f- four fingers and a thumb. So Pete Gagan's clearly oh, one. Pete Gagan. Yeah. Senna. Yep. Lewis Hamilton. Yep. Nelson PK. Yep. Giles Villeneuve. Oh, yeah. Now, Alan... So you only got one local bloke on there. Well, Alan Jones was six. What if you had a local hand... Oh, a local hand. Yeah. No, this is worldwide. This world, but oh. you got them on your world. But if you go okay, local, Pete. oh, you got to go, Pete, the Gagan, both Pete and Leo, Frank Maddage, KB. Um, You're going to have five hands here, I reckon. Yeah, Brocky, Brocky, and Jim Richards, obviously. Um, and and the reason you say that is a, you've seen them all be raced against them. Um, but did I? I've used up my five hands there. I yeah, I think you're out. I think I'm out. I'm I done. think you need some extra fingers attached. I'm <laughs> done. I'm done. <laughs> there you have it. Part one of my chat with Gary Scott. Next week we release part two with a whole bunch of stuff. I won't go into the depths of it all, but there's plenty of good juicy missing stuff. And there's also a revelation that came right at the very end. You'll have to listen to it next week, but he opens up about the time that he last got behind the wheel of a race car. It's one that 
judging by his reaction, too many people knew that he did either at the time or since. But anyway, that's next week on the V8 Salute Podcast powered by Retco. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, part one with Gary Scott, part two to come next week. Don't forget the Castro Motorsport News Podcast every Tuesday and Repco Supercars Weekly every Thursday or Friday, depending on the news of the week. Uh, we've got you covered for Motorsport Podcast, the Motorsport Podcast Network. Hope you've enjoyed this episode. We'll listen to all the archive episodes of the V8 Super Podcast in the meantime. We'll have part two with Gary Scott, same time next week. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number 2, and oil, and find out.